Hi and welcome to this latest episode from 1914 to 1918war.com. In this episode I'll be looking ahead at some anniversaries coming up over the next week and then I'll be finishing off the Cookshaven uh, article that I was going through last week. As always, if you do enjoy these, please give a review. Uh, there's a core of people who listen to this every week, so uh, you must be enjoying it a bit. And your simple action can help to get this out to a wider audience. Thanks a lot. Right, let's get on with the show. Everything you hold for a while is at stake. Du hast uns starke Berührung mit der See, wenn wir sehen, wie uns Hörnchen weltumfangen Geistchen nur von gewinnen. Ja, dann trinkst du, gib mir die Mercy, We'll start this week with a look at some anniversaries that are coming up over the next uh, few days. In 1914, over the next week, we see the trench lines that will endure for much of the rest of the war begin to form as on the 21st, British and French fall back around Passchendaele to Ypres. And uh, then on the 24th, the Germans are unable to break through at Langmark. Uh, and uh, notably on the 25th of October, some Indian troops uh, arrive on the Western Front for the first time. Jumping ahead to 1915, on the 24th, the King asked uh, General Haig about uh, Sir John French's leadership, and Haig said that he should have been removed before now, but uh, he can do less harm now that the lines are stable. This is uh, happening in the aftermath of the Battle of Luce. Jumping ahead to 1916, uh, we've got the Battle of Verdun raging at the moment. Uh, the French retaking Fort Dumont, uh, capturing 6,000 German prisoners on the 22nd. Then in 1917, uh, on the 26th of October, as the Italian front uh, is pushed back, uh, notable German and uh, Austro-Hungarian successes there, uh, Lloyd George orders two divisions uh, to uh, shore up the defences there. And on October the 26th, uh, Haig launches his last attempt to try and capture the village of Passchendaele on the Western Front. Jumping ahead to October 1918, on the 23rd, President Wilson of the United States writes to Prime Minister Lloyd George and Prime Minister Clemenceau suggesting that they think about their armistice terms. Accordingly, on the 25th of October, uh, the Allied commanders Foch, Pershing, Haig and Petain uh, meet to agree their terms for an armistice, um, thinking about how they can prevent the Germans from carrying on the fight. So there we are, uh, some anniversaries coming up over the next week. And now let's resume our look at the Cuxhaven raid of 1914. So last week we looked at the plans for bombing the Zeppelin sheds that were out of range uh, by using a carrier force to take seaplanes uh, closer to the uh, German coast. This week we'll finish the story seeing what happened on Christmas Day 1914. Turret's force sailed from Harwich early in the morning on Christmas Eve 1914. The raiding fleet's departure was unannounced and caught many by surprise, uh, not least those from the departing ships who'd been rounding up essential Christmas supplies for their ships. Uh, they sailed through the night and arrived in the Heligoland Bight at 4.30am on Christmas morning. 
Spotting four small German patrol vessels and hearing increased German radio traffic, Turret considered turning back as he was still two hours off the point where he planned to launch his small air force. Fearing the Germans were now alerted, he was concerned that once the seaplanes were in the air, his carriers, loitering in the bite, might become an easy target for the German fleet. But rather than risk another failed raid, he decided to see it through. The weather was calm as the three carriers reached their start position and stopping engines lowered their seaplanes carefully into the sea. The air was chilly with a breeze from the east but dawn's light revealed a clear day with good visibility. In short, ideal flying weather. By 6.30am the nine seaplanes were starting their engines and at 6.59 signal flags commanded the planes to take off. Of the nine aircraft, Two immediately suffered from engine problems and were unable to take off and were recovered back on board the carriers. Lacking a decent headwind to provide additional lift, the remaining aircraft required longer takeoff runs than expected, but eventually they were all airborne and heading southeast towards uh, Cuxhaven. The carrier flotilla now withdrew to the planned recovery position 20 miles off the German island of Norderney. The Nordholtz airship base, the headquarters of German Naval Airship Division, was about eight miles south of the port of Cuxhaven. Here an enormous aircraft hangar, capable of housing two Zeppelins side by side, had been built. The hangars were 597 feet long, and the overall shed weighed 4,000 tonnes. Despite the scale of the building, the whole construction rested on a giant turntable, allowing the airships to be launched regardless of the wind direction hopefully avoiding damage to the fragile airships as they came out through the doors. The Zeppelins housed at Nordholtz had been built in 1914 and were each 518 feet long with three engines, lifted by nearly 800,000 cubic feet of hydrogen and carrying 24 crew, each craft was capable of carrying several hundred pounds of bombs. This was the target and the scale of the Zeppelin shed meant that the British expected that once within range, Navigation would be no problem at all. Unfortunately, the weather deteriorated away from the launch point and a heavy freezing fog had developed inland. The fog made navigation difficult as it mostly blanketed the surrounding countryside with only occasional thinner patches. One of these breaks in the cloud allowed the Germans to launch Zeppelin L6 on a routine patrol at around 6.30 in the morning. The British airmen struggled in the fog, and I'll quote, which blotted out everything except what was lying immediately under the machine. Unable to navigate successfully, only one aircraft reached the Nordholtz base, but the fog hid the airship hangar, so they dropped their bombs on some anti-aircraft guns that were visible. Another pilot was forced to fly along railway tracks until they led him to the Jade Estuary, where the ships moored there, fired at him, spotting some likely-looking structures, bombs were dropped, but the suspected Zeppelin hangars were fish-smoking sheds, and sadly devoid of airships. In military terms, two of the seaplanes did actually engage the enemy, one attacking the light cruisers Stralsund and Graudenz, but the bombs weren't dropped close enough to trouble the two ships. Another seaplane was forced to turn back when its engine began to misfire. Flying over the Schilling Roads harbour, it attracted a large amount of gunfire and gathered valuable intelligence about the whereabouts of seven German battleships and three German cruisers. 
presumably in exchange for a few grey hairs on the head of the pilot and observer. Throughout the raid, the German fleet remained at anchor, which was lucky for Tirrett's force, as they would have been easy prey if a reasonably sized force had been sent against them. Luckily for Tirrett, there seemed to have been a misapprehension on the German side about the scale of the force arrayed against them. The Germans believed that at some stage, the British would attempt to limit the high seas fleet's access to the North Sea by sinking block ships over the rivers that provided access to the open seas. The German command seems to have mistaken the Christmas Day raid for the anticipated attack and assumed that such an operation would be supported by an overwhelming force, the British Grand Fleet. Rather than take heavy losses, and mindful that Kaiser Wilhelm had ordered his precious battleships must not be lost, the only forces ready to defend the Heligoland Bight that day were U-boats and Zeppelins. Even once the raid was underway, and reports flowed back to Admiral Ingonol that accurately described the size of the British force, he remained worried that a larger British force could be in the area. Whilst the Seidlitz, Moltke, Derflinger and von der Tann were available and were made ready to sail, they were ordered to stand down. This timidity caused the Germans to miss a golden opportunity to inflict a significant defeat on the British. Remember, defeating the British in small penny parcels was exactly what the Germans wanted to do, and this was to indirectly contribute to Ingonel's replacement as commander of the High Seas Fleet. The bombing raid had not been a success by any measure. Ten bombs had been dropped with no military effect, and now six of the seven seaplanes reached the rendezvous point, low on fuel, and hoping that their carrier ships were there to rescue them. While the aircraft had been battling adversity inland, while Tirrett's force had been steaming towards the recovery position, the Empress, which had developed problems with her boilers, was lagging behind the main force and had been spotted by German aircraft, including Zeppelin L6, which you may remember from the fog a few minutes ago. Now the world's first ever air-to-sea combat began to unfold, as first the aircraft and then L6 tried to bomb the Empress. At 9am, two German seaplanes bombed the Empress from 1,600 feet and 1,800 feet respectively, narrowly missing the ship. Despite nine bombs being dropped and vigorous return fire from the ship, neither came to grief during the encounter. Now L6 descended to 2,000 feet and tried to manoeuvre into position overhead. Captain Frederick Bohel, commanding the Empress quickly found that an airship was no match for his ship on the manoeuvrability stakes as he was able to repeatedly evade the Zeppelin's attempts to drop 310 pound bombs on the Empress. Two bombs missed by just 50 feet but that was more than enough for the Empress to survive and now with no bombs remaining L6 flew off. The recovery force reached the rendezvous north of Nordene just before 10am and a few minutes later two aircraft landed close to the Riviera and were recovered. HMS Lurcher, a destroyer, recovered the crew of another when the pilot landed nearby, asking for directions to the carriers. When he stated he had only five minutes of fuel left, Commodore Keyes, who was on the Lurcher, suggested that the crew abandon their aircraft and join him. As the aircraft returned in dribs and drabs, the force was attacked again as two more German seaplanes dropped seven bombs with little effect. Commodore Tirrett was later to write that ships had nothing to fear from either seaplanes or zeppelins, adding that the airships were stupid great things but very beautiful. It seems a pity to shoot at them. 
Now Tyrrett decided that the aircraft that had not yet returned must have run out of fuel and were probably lost. He signalled his ships, I wish all ships a Merry Christmas, and turned back his force in the direction of Harwich and home. Luckily the missing aircraft were not lost. One had landed near Norderney and was rescued by E-11, a British submarine which spotted the British seaplane in the air and ordered his boat to the surface. The pilot landed nearby and asked for directions towards the nearest carrier as he was nearly out of fuel. While this conversation was happening, a German airship, L-5, was spotted approaching from the east. Then another British submarine, D-6, surfaced, intending to assist. Unfortunately, Captain Martin Naismith, commanding E-11, mistook the D-6 for a German U-boat, and his suspicions were confirmed when D-6 began to dive as if preparing to attack. In fact, the D-6 had spotted the German Zeppelin approaching and had decided to submerge. Naismith, with a Zeppelin approaching over the water and a potential U-boat under the water, decided that time was of the essence and ordered the pilot and observer to abandon their plane and swim across to his submarine. Pausing only to machine-gun the floating aircraft to prevent it falling into enemy hands, he executed a crash dive to the safety of the seabed. Here the crew and their two additional guests sat down to an impromptu Christmas dinner. D6 was lucky to escape as she surfaced just as L5 flew directly overhead and began machine-gunning him. Submerging again, the submarine's captain decided that heading for home would be more restful. This left one seaplane unaccounted for. Out of fuel and with the recovery carriers far away, the aircraft and crew were found by a Dutch fishing trawler who took the crew on board. Later they would be repatriated from Holland back to Britain. The sum total of the raid was no casualties on either side and little damage to the raid's intended targets. The Grand Fleet had forayed out in support of the raid in the hope that the German high seas fleet would leave its bases and sail into a trap, but Jellicoe was to be disappointed, and now the Grand Fleet was caught in worsening weather. Whilst returning home to Scarpa Flow, four sailors were lost overboard, and three destroyers were so badly damaged by the storm that they needed repairs. Finally, the battleships HMS Monarch and HMS Conqueror collided as the Monarch tried to avoid a patrolling trawler on the entrance to Scarpa Flow. Both ships were damaged badly enough to take them out of Jellicoe's order of battle and reduce the ratio of dreadnoughts in the North Sea to 18 British dreadnoughts versus 17 German. However, the Germans didn't necessarily know that the two navies were more balanced than before, a policy aim they'd long hoped to achieve through attrition, and even if they had, they would have been unable to take advantage of the situation, given the Kaiser's prohibition on endangering his precious ships. As well as damage to shipping, four British seaplanes had been destroyed, while the Germans had lost one seaplane and had no casualties. So was the raid worth it? Well, it was a lot of effort for very little outcome, R. D. Lehman, a historian of the Cuxhaven raid who was writing around the time, pointed out that it took 150 British warships to, and I'll quote, to deliver to the German mainland exactly 81 and a half pounds of explosives. This was the combined weight of the bursting charges in the 27 bombs to be carried by the seaplanes. From this perspective, all the raid had achieved was to put British ships at risk but I think the knowledge gathered by conducting the operation was twofold. 
With seaborne power in its infancy, the raid helped to develop operational methods for this relatively new form of warfare. Additionally, the knowledge that zeppelins were relatively ineffective against shipping was particularly valuable. This knowledge gained was to be put to good use throughout the war as the carriers carried on various bombing and reconnaissance missions in both the North Atlantic and the Mediterranean. And the audacious plan had put one over the Germans, who'd been too timid to attack what turned out to be an inferior force foraying close to the German coast. This wasn't good for German morale, and the raid contributed to the feeling in the German high command that the high seas fleet might be better placed under a different admiral. On balance, if the weather had cooperated, the raid could have been a stunning success. In clear weather, the sheds would have been located and probably damaged or destroyed. On that basis alone, the audacious Cuxhaven raid was probably worth the risks. Of course, whether the Zeppelins would have been in the sheds in fine weather couldn't have been predicted. Such is the difficulty of what-if scenarios. That brings us to the end of our uh, look at the Cuxhaven raid of Christmas Day 1914. I hope you've enjoyed that. If you did, remember to leave a review. And I'll uh, see you next episode. Bye-bye. <laughs>